Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas, and we're doing Life Over Coffee, having conversations for transformation. I am on lesson six of our friendship series, Building Quality Relationships. Thank you so much for joining me here at Life Over Coffee. We exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation. And so I trust that what I have shared so far in this friendship series has been beneficial to you. And if you have not watched the previous five lessons, I would encourage you to do so. I have these lessons in a video format. I, I developed seven keynote presentations with animations and a lot of notes, a lot of outline here for you to visually pay attention to, and even you have the opportunity to download several graphics that I've created for you. I've also put these in audio format too. So the intent is, is that you would watch the videos and then you can listen to the audios several times after seeing the videos. Uh, the audio will bring all these things back to memory. But the goal here is for you to retain the information. And so the video and audio formats work together. Now, again, this is lesson number six, and I've titled it Actions That Build Relationships. This follows right on the heels of lesson number five, which was words that build relationships. And so now that we have worked through words, I want to talk a little bit about our behaviors, the actions that build relationships. Again, the friendship series, building quality relationships. Throughout this series, the verse that we have been using is 1 John chapter 4, verse number 12. The great apostle said, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And so in this lesson number six, the big idea is we speak volumes through our attitudes, through our actions, through our priorities. Learn wise actions and priorities that will build godly relationships. And so let's take a look at the outline. Lesson number six, actions that build relationships. Point number one, people absorb you. Point number two, the best leader. Point number three, modeling the gospel. And then point number five, or four rather, active repentance. And so let's take a look at this idea of people absorbing you. I say it this way. People absorb your daily life more than they process and respond to your instruction. I would love it if you would just spend some time thinking about that one sentence there. Actions can speak louder than words. Now, I know that all of us can recall words that have been said to us that have been hurtful, and those are true, and they have had those adverse impact. But also, I don't want us to negate or marginalize our behaviors toward other people as well. Uh, as I say it here, people absorb our daily lives. 
When it comes to impacting lives, there is no question that actions can speak louder than words, making the warning sobering. And the consequences can be severe if the life that you're living is out of line with the teaching of the gospel. Perhaps you have heard this. I most definitely have. Christians are hypocrites. Now, I don't care for global statements without nuance or sophistication because, quite frankly, most of those statements are untrue, as this one is. But sometimes when a person is hurting or they have been affected negatively by, by a group or a demo, an individual within a demo, rather, they can make those global statements and say, Christians are hypocrites. I don't want to have anything to do with them. And so I, I'm not negating what happened to them. I'm not negating their lived experience. I'm not negating the validity of uh, whatever it is someone did to them. I am saying those global statements are untrue. But within that, what they are saying is that this person's behavior had such an impact on my life that I don't want anything to do with Christianity. Now, you can bring that down from the macro of just a general person making a broad statement like that into the micro where you hear it within the family unit. Uh, where children walk away from the faith because they have seen the hypocrisy of the parents. Some of these parents will give their children instruction that says something like, you need to live for God, uh, you need to live a godly life, you need to love God, you need to become a Christian, etc. But there is a a behavioral detachment from the words that they are using, meaning that these parents, their lives, their behaviors are not in line with the gospel. Therefore, their instruction becomes marginalized and even disqualifying. Those of you who are familiar with our ministry, you've heard me say uh, many times that the modeling of the gospel must precede the teaching of the gospel. If it's not, then our modeling will disqualify our teaching. I hear what you say, but the behaviors that you exhibit uh, motivates me not to listen to what you say because uh, your actions speak louder than words. And so point number one is that people absorb us. And there is no other place where it's more impactful than within the family construct. And one of the reasons for that is because children are most impressionable in the first decade of their life. And where do they live? Primarily within the family. And so even though they can have difficult, challenging relationships in the workplace uh, when they're 18 or 28 years old, those relationships will not be nearly as impactful as the ones that they experienced in the first 10 years of their life when the concrete was not set, when they were moldable, when their hearts could really be shaped before they uh, were either matured in Christ or hardened against Christ. And the parents, uh, the behavior of the parents, not just directly, 
on the child, but also the behavior between the parents as they observe our lives. And so our children observe uh, the relationship between the dad and the mom. And if the dad and the mom don't get along or if they're constantly biting and devouring one another, as Paul talked about in Galatians, and then they turn right around and head off to the church meeting or, or teach their children or tell their children to follow Christ Again, the children have absorbed so much negative influence of the parents that they can't hear the instruction or they rebel against the instruction because it just does not pass the eye test because they have been absorbing their daily lives for a decade or more. And so actions that build relationships, we have to take heed to how we live our lives, not just the direct impact that we have on someone, but the impact that we have on someone through the observations that they make by how we interact with others and how we generally deport ourselves. And so people absorb our daily life more than they process and respond to our instruction. May we heed the warning. And then point number two, I want to talk about the best leader. And let me state it this way. The imperfect leader is the best biblical leader who objectively lives for Christ. Now, that's an interesting sentence. I want you to focus on it. And, of course, I'm sure probably the word that jumps out more than any other is the word imperfect. The imperfect leader is the best biblical leader. Why do I say that? Because I imperfect, we can't imitate Christ perfectly. I mean, who nails it 10 times out of 10? Who has reached the level of perfection? Therefore, the best life that we can live to be the best biblical leader that we can be is going to be an imperfect leader. We never expect a person to be perfect, but we want them to be genuine. And we want to make that distinction. Children should understand uh, that their dad is not perfect, their mom is not perfect. They should understand that how mom and dad relate to one another will not be perfect. That's okay if they can see that my dad was a genuine Christian. My mom was genuine. Their relationship was genuine, not perfect, but genuine. It was an authentic Christian experience, and that is what I have absorbed. Now, I'm going to talk a little later in this lesson number six about this idea of imperfection and how we can clean up our messes. But right now, I just want you to make that distinction between perfect and genuine or imperfect and genuine. I am okay with imperfect leaders. I mean, why should I not be? Because that's the best kind of leader that I'm ever going to experience from someone else. It's the best kind of leader that I am going to be. But what I look for in my own life and other people that I assess or people that we develop through our ministry is not for perfection. That would be unrealistic. It would set them up for discouragement and failure. But what I am looking for is sincerity. I am looking for a genuineness. I am looking for imperfect people who are trying to do 
the best that they can. Uh, people who genuinely love the Lord, they're genuinely living for God, but of course they do that in an imperfect way. That is acceptable. That is 100% acceptable in a fallen world, and that is the best kind of leader that you can have. And so you do have to distinguish between episodic failure and differentiate that between patterns of failure. And that fits right up into what I am saying here. See, episodic failure is what makes us imperfect. Now, patterns of failure, that is a different animal. And so a person who is in a pattern of failure, that is a habituation, and they need to pull up. They need to recalibrate. They need to change. They need to learn how to put off that former manner of life and to renew their minds and to put on Christ. They need to get out of that habituated pattern of failure that they are in. Now, what a pattern of failure will turn into, what it will transform into in most cases will be episodic failure. And episodic failure is not, uh, is not bad. Uh, and what will happen is that episodic failure, there will be uh, gaps in episodic failure that will get further and further apart. And so you go from patterns of failure to episodes of failure, and then the space in those episodes will get further and further apart. That is a person who is genuinely trying to live for Christ. And so I expect people to fail in an episodic way. I expect them to appropriate the grace of God into their lives and to be living a life of repentance to where those episodes become farther and farther apart. However, if a person is living in a consistent pattern of failure and not making any plans to change whatsoever, people will absorb that life and they will be affected adversely by that life as opposed to the person who is failing episodically, but they are genuinely trying to live for the Lord. Episodes happen a pattern is the habituated person who does not change. And of course, in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, there is a call to action there in that passage of what to do with the person who is uh, in a pattern of failure. And so point number one is absorbing uh, us. Uh, point number two is the best leader. And then point number three is modeling the gospel. There are three verses that I want to look at that talk about imitating or emulating the gospel. One of those is Ephesians 5.1. In Ephesians 5.1, it says, As beloved children, imitate God. That is a profound statement. It is a, a high mark. It is not saying that we are to be perfect. It is not saying that we are to be God. Sometimes people will say, They'll compare themselves to Jesus, and they'll and and then they will uh, make a, a a caveat that I can't do that, and reason I can't do that is because I am not Jesus. And they'll say something like, "Well, well, that was Jesus. Of course, he lived that kind of life. You know, well, that was Jesus. That's why he always responded that way." And the implication there is, it's almost like I shouldn't shouldn't even try. Uh, the implication there is I can't hit that, so I'm not even going to try that. Well, there's no, there's no biblical warrant for that kind of worldview, and it 
at best, it is a careless statement. At worst, it's, it's a person who uh, is rationalizing why they are not trying to live the Christ-like life. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 1, as beloved children, imitate God. Now, we're not going to take this text in isolation as though it is the only sentence that God has ever given us. No, he has given us the Bible. And so you would slide over to 1 John 1, 9, and it would say that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so on one hand, he's telling us to imitate God. On the other hand, he's saying we're not going to do it perfectly. And then he's saying that we have a way of cleaning up our messes. And again, I'll talk about that at the end of this lesson. But right now, uh, we just need to think about the high marks. You need a mark that is outside of our experience and outside of our ability to hit. Now, one of the reasons that you want a high mark outside of your ability to hit is because uh, we could fall prone to self-reliance. And this is what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians chapter one, that God be your burden us beyond our strength to teach us to rely on him, to not rely on ourselves, but to rely on him who raises the dead. Well, there is no question that this verse here in Ephesians 5 is beyond our strength. It is beyond our ability to do this. We cannot do this, and that is absolutely perfect. Because if we try to apply this verse in our life, we have to say, dear God, teach me to rely on you who raises the dead because this is beyond my ability. And so the call on our lives is to imitate God. We know that we're not going to do that perfectly because of the implication of 1 John chapter 1, verse number 9. And so when we do not imitate God perfectly, we have a plan because we're genuine uh, Christians, and because of our genuineness, not our perfection, but our genuineness, uh, what we will do is that we will work through the repentance process. We have a sin plan, and because of that sin plan, we're going to rectify whatever was wrong and get back on the track of emulating Christ as he's teaching us in Ephesians 5.1. Now, you see a similar verse in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. This is the short sentence where Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, this is another way of saying Ephesians 5.1. This is a beautiful verse of Scripture. I'm going to animate it for you uh, just to give you a visual of what it looks like here on the screen. Uh, you see Ephesians 5.1, imitate God. You see 1 Corinthians 11.1, follow me as I follow Christ. And so it could look like this, let's say, in the home. Now, the leader in the home is never the man, never the husband. It is always Christ. Christ is the leader in the home. And then, of course, the husband is following Christ. And this is what Paul was saying. Follow me as I follow Christ. The implication is clear. The man uh, is submitted uh, to God Almighty. He is following God Almighty. And then his wife follows the man. And then the child follows uh, the, the wife, the mom, and the dad, and the parents as they follow Christ. And this is what it looks like inside the home. It's follow the leader. This is the orientation of the home. And when a home is established this way, uh, this is a picture of, of what God wants us to do within our families, and everybody has a role to play. And so in this structure, you see the hierarchy. There is Christ, the head of the home. 
And then the husband is the under-shepherd, so to speak, under Christ. And then the wife is under the husband, and the children is under uh, the mother. And so that is a hierarchical structure in the home. And this is where the husband can legitimately say, follow me as I follow Christ. And then, of course, the mother or the wife could say the same thing, follow me as I follow Christ. If you would like a copy of this slide, you can put your phone over the QR code and you can download it to your device. And I would love for you to uh, share this graphic uh, with those, uh, well, one for your personal benefit, but then also those that you instruct. Now, you'll see on this graphic here that if the husband is not following Christ, as I outlined in the previous animation, uh, she still has to follow the Lord. Uh, she does not have, she doesn't uh, get the option, the biblical option of not following Christ, even if her husband does not. And of course, that's what you see here on this graphic. If they're not walking down the yellow pathway, the arrows that you see here, and let's say the husband isn't, well, then the wife will follow the Lord despite whatever her husband may do. We're talking about actions that build relationships. This is lesson six in our friendship series, building quality relationships. Lesson five was about words. Now we're talking about actions. Now there is one more verse that says a similar thing, and it is it is in Philippians 4, 9. All of these verses have a degree of difficulty, as I was talking about in Ephesians 5, emulating God, uh, a very high mark that pushes us beyond our strength to where we have to rely on him who raises the dead. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, it really just obliterates hypocrisy uh, because we can't say, you follow Christ and I'm just going to extract myself from uh, this process here. Uh, no, we say, you follow Christ, you follow me as I follow of Christ, and so you can't extract yourself from uh, the leadership opportunity there. But then in Philippians 4, 9, I think this is probably the most difficult of the three verses that talk about imitating or modeling the gospel. I want to put it up here on your screen. I've highlighted different words. You can see it here, Philippians 4, 9. Paul said this, and I want you to notice the four things that he told you to told us to imitate. He's telling the church at Philippi, but we can apply it to ourselves. Paul says, what you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard, what you have seen in me, in Paul. I want you to practice these things. And then he gives you a promise. He says, if you practice these things, the God of peace will be with you. Now think about that verse for just a moment. It is really profound. Perhaps you can read it backwards and it would sound like this. A dad could go to his son or go to his daughter and say, hey, would you like the God of peace to be with you? And your child says, yes, I would love to have peace in my soul. I would love to have my, my soul noise reduced. I've got so much internal t turmoil. Dad, how can, I, how can I reduce or mitigate my soul noise? How can I have peace? And your dad says, I want you to practice these things. And what dad is saying, everything that you learn from me, everything that you receive from me, everything that you hear from me, everything that you see in me. Son, if you practice these things, I promise you that the God of peace will be with you. And this is what Paul was saying in Philippians 4, 9. And so I would encourage you, uh, I would love for you just to, you know, screenshot this or or 
you know, pull that verse from your Bible and memorize it, commit it to heart. And as a homework assignment in lesson number six here, I, I want you to spend some time talking to someone about this verse and how it applies to you. And then I would love for you to make a plan for how you can make whatever changes that you need to change. Maybe you need to go to someone and say, you know, I have not done this well. Will you forgive me? I'm going to start living out these three verses in Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, and of course here in Philippians 4, 9. I want to be able to say confidently and genuinely what Paul said, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, of course, that raises a huge question, and the question is, how in the world uh, you know, can I do this? So one of the things that you'll have to understand as we assess people, as we uh, try to discern the differences in people, that, that people are going to live a life for Christ differently. There's no carbon copying here. And so when you look at Philippians 4.9 and the other two verses that I mentioned, 1 Corinthians 11.1 and Ephesians 5.1, when you look at those verses, you have to understand that the way that you live your life the way you genuinely live for Christ in your relationships is going to be different from the next person. It'll be different from your spouse if you are married. It'll be different from your children if you have them. Children, it'll be different from your parents. Everybody is going to live a unique life. But we, going back to what I was saying earlier, we're going to do it imperfectly. And so what we're really looking for is a genuineness in our deportment as we live out the life of Christ before others. Now, what I want to do here is I want to walk through, and this is so important to understand when you think about people, because the temptation can be to map our experience over others, or how I think about things, you should think about things. And, you know, parents can do this with children. You know, this this is how I live my life, so this is how you should live your life as well. This is how I think, so this is how you should think. We need to have more sophistication in how we think about other people. So as we make a case for imperfection, because that's the best we can do, and make a strong case for genuineness, that is absolutely essential. We also need to add this third part here, that it's not going to look the same for everybody Every single person will be different, all eight plus billion of us. And so this graphic uh, that I want to show you, uh, it helps communicate some of this. I'm looking at three aspects of all of us, our character, our capacity, our competency. And so our character, this is who we are internally. Let me show you some of the characteristics of our character, some of the elements of our character. You see it here on the screen, our spirituality. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. You'll also see inside of this list uh, part uh, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, gentleness, goodness, patience, kindness, love, uh, joy, uh, faithfulness, and so forth. Uh, but there is integrity, there is affection, there's morality, there's self-control. There's the alien righteousness of Christ, meaning are they saved or not? There is humility, there is honesty, there is maturity, 
And you can add many things to this word cloud here. But the important thing that I want you to see is that everybody is different from a character perspective. Now, you also add degrees of maturation in there. You could have a young person in the Lord. Well, their character development is going to be really different than a person who's been walking with the Lord for 50 years, let's say. And so as we're looking for imperfection with people, but genuineness, we have to recognize also that everybody is different. This is just from a character uh, perspective. Now, there's a capacity perspective. The, the way to think about capacity is perhaps uh, setting out on your table five different jars, and each jar is a different height or a different size. Every container is different. Our capacity is our container. Some people would be a large soul capacity person. And then another person would be a small soul, different capacity type person. And again, this is essential that we understand the makeup of the people that we are serving, or we can place expectations on them but that they can never meet, thus exasperating them. Here is a word cloud of some of the capacity elements that you're looking for uh, with people that you're discipling or people within your own family. By the way, this graphic is the graphic that we use, one of the graphics we use in our Mastermind program because we see our Mastermind students the same way. They're all different. As I tell our students, we put each one of you in a silo. We do not do group training. We do customized training because each person is different. I know that all of our students are imperfect, but I can't place one bar out there and expect everyone to hit that mark because that is not remotely possible. One, the character development, as you see in the on the left side of the screen, and then in the center of the screen here, you see their capacity. And so you have five different containers that contain things like intellect, education, cognitive, insight, analysis, understanding, stamina, physicality, strong-hearted, sturdy, we talk about this within our uh, within our mastermind program. You have to be sturdy to be a counselor. Some people are more feeble. They're not sturdy. And so placing an expectation to be something that you can never be would be unkind. And then, of course, there's peripheral vision and other things that are listed here. And then the third element that we're looking at is a person's competency. Here's a list of a person's competency. It could be application, creativity, flexibility, behavior, modeling, uh, shepherding, discretion, uh, sobriety, winsomeness, gaslight proof, and so forth. And so as we think about other people, or as we think about ourselves, we don't want to fall prone to comparing ourselves with other people and, and then be all discouraged because we can't be like them. It's not about being like them. It's about following Christ and living the Christ life with your actions according to how God is developing your character, your capacity, and your competency. And again, these are three ways that we talk about it within our training. If you want to download this graphic, you can put your uh, camera over the QR code and you can uh, get this graphic and use it as you talk about some of these ideas. The last part of this lesson, number uh, six in our friendship series, Building Quality Relationships, is 
this is the game changer. This is the imperfect leader who is genuinely trying to follow Christ, meaning they're doing it with a good heart, but they're making mistakes along the way, and that is the best we can do. However, the good news is, is that we can clean up our messes. This takes us back to 1 John, uh, where if we confess our sins, God cleans up our messes and we can get back on the track again. I want to briefly walk through what active repentance looks like. I say active because it's not passive. We need to be engaged in the repentance process. And so let's say that we sin. We experience conviction. The Spirit of God is grieved inside of us. The Spirit of God is quenched inside of us. Our conscience is condemning us because we have done wrong. Now, if we do not respond correctly to our conscience, there could be a, a layering effect. Our conscience can go dull, as the Hebrew writer said in 3.7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And if we're not careful, we could be heading toward hardness. And so we make a mistake. We sin against someone. Our actions are not lining up with the gospel. We are convicted by it. We're going to respond well to our conscience. We're not going to layer it. We're not going to head toward hardness, and so we're going to confess that to God. We're going to confess it to whomever we have sinned against. To confess simply means that we agree. I agree with God. I agree with God's word. I agree that I have done wrong. I am confessing that. And then we enter a forgiveness process. Now, the forgiveness process, uh, I've got entire teaching on this at lifeovercoffee.com. I realize I'm doing a flyover on this slide, but I've got more in-depth teaching. I've written a ton on forgiveness and done webinars on it, and you can find that content at lifeovercoffee.com. But I just want to mention three aspects of the forgiveness nomenclature. The first is pre-forgiveness. This is what we see with um, Joseph. It is preparing your heart to receive someone who, who's going to come to you and ask you for forgiveness. So pre-forgiveness is not about the offender. It's about the offended. And if you want to build proper relationships, then both people have to engage the repentance process, both the offender and the offended. Or what you could have is the offender asking for forgiveness, but the offended is harboring bitterness or hurt or resentment in their heart that they haven't conditioned their heart to receive the offender to ask for or to transact forgiveness. And of course, you see this in Joseph. Obviously, Joseph was ready and prepared to receive the forgiveness of his brothers. And so pre-forgiveness is about the offended, not about the offender primarily. And then there is attitudinal forgiveness. This is the person who uh, has been sinned against, uh, but the offender is not asking. Well, the, the offended does not want to be incarcerated by what the offended did. And so even though the offended will never be free until they ask, the offended needs to work through a heart of forgiveness so that they are not struggling with it. How many people are are entangled by the sins of others because they are bitter, cynical, angry, unforgiving? They don't have a proper attitude toward what was done to them. And sometimes this is all you can do. For example, if your offender has died, 
and they can never transact forgiveness, then you want to be released from what they did, even though they never shall. And so attitudinal forgiveness is critical. And then, of course, transactional. This is when both people engage each other. Uh, The offender has a heart of forgiveness, has an attitude of forgiveness. The offended is asking, and they want to clean up their mess, and therefore they transact it. And then if they do transact it, then that sin has been neutralized by the power of the gospel, and they are now reconciled. There is nothing between them. The sin is gone, obliterated. Uh, It is no longer animating. Uh, It has no life in it because of the gospel. They are reconciled. And then at that point, they can begin possibly restoring the relationship It doesn't mean necessarily that they're going to be best buddies. It could be that they just reconcile and go their different ways. If it's a marriage relationship, they want to go beyond reconciliation, and they want to enter into a restoration process. This is what Paul was saying in Galatians 6.1. If anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore them in a spirit of gentleness. And So this is where the offender and the offended come together, and the offended helps the offender in the restoration process so that they don't do it again. And then the offender uh, now becomes a disciple maker. Rather than sinning against other people, they are now uh, helping other people in a discipleship context. And so this is a brief understanding of what active repentance looks like. This is the only way that we will be able to emulate Christ uh, in a fallen world, because we will make mistakes. We must make sure that our actions, that we clean up our actions uh, so that um, we can get back on the track. Now, within our ministry, one of the things that I like to do is I envision counselees as I talk about this idea of having good companions, which was Paul's language in 1 Corinthians. I am going to show you on the screen here how I envision counselees. I would encourage you to use this similar template, though you may choose different words, to surround yourself with good companions because it is hard to live an imperfect life as a genuine Christian who is actively repenting, and so we need to do this in community. I envision counselees this way. They come to a counseling session. Typically, I'll ask them to bring a friend. Uh, Every Timothy needs a Paul, and so bring your mentoring Paul with you to the counseling session. We give them resources uh, that coincide with whatever is happening in the counseling office. We can give them long-term homework assignments that are to specific needs. Some resources are for ongoing sanctification, while homework can be for specific things going on in their lives. Of course, with our ministry, we have private forums where they can dialogue with other people and have ongoing conversations. We encourage them to start building community life within their local church. We ask them to attend their church meetings. Of course, Bible and prayer are essential, their spiritual engagement. And of course, all of these are about them receiving something, but we want them to go out and start serving others uh, rather than being a taker only. We want them to be a giver as well. Now, if they do these things well, I mean, the counseling can, should actually go away, but these other things or whatever you feel in here in these um, 
slots. And what I would encourage you to do is to screenshot this. And then part of your homework assignment for this lesson, what I want you to do is to fill out what your good companions would be. These action things that you should be doing to surround yourself with good companions. These are also things that you would teach others, but you would teach them by example. And so you would show someone this graphic that you have filled in uniquely to you in your life. And then you would show it to someone and say, I want you to follow me me as I follow Christ, and this is what following Christ looks like as far as my actions are concerned. Again, this is just an illustration of how we try to envision our counselees. You can download this graphic if you wish by jumping on the uh, QR code with your device, and you can use this, and of course you can adapt, uh, make your own, and I would encourage you because this visual is essential. We not only have to exhibit good actions, but we need to surround ourselves ourselves in a community that's doing the same so we can spur one another on to love and good deeds. This is lesson number six, actions that build godly relationships, the big idea. We speak volumes through our attitudes, actions, and priorities. Learn wise actions and priorities that will build godly relationships. One more thing, if you would pray about our ministry. Ask God's continual favor on it. Follow us wherever we may be on social media. Please share our content. You can be wonderful evangelists for Life Over Coffee by sharing us on your social media platforms, which I know many of you do. And then if you're in the place where you can support or donate, to our ministry, uh, if you would do that, uh, we can only operate by having underwriters, financial partners that come alongside because, again, we give so many of our resources away. We do need that financial uh, support. If you're interested in becoming our next Mastermind student, you can scan this QR code and learn what that process is about. And, of course, you can also write us at lifeovercoffee.com. This is lesson number six, Actions That Build Relationships, the Friendship Series, Building Quality Relationships. Thank you so much. I am Rick Thomas. I'm very glad uh, that you have gone through this lesson with me. If we can serve you, please come over to lifeovercoffee.com. Check out our resources because there are a lot of conversations for transformation. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.